Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Don't be upset by a northern bloke. Ronaldo, he looks at me, smiled, and he's never done it again. What's in there, Mickey? He went, oh, that's about 300 grand in there, kid. I'm on the opposite end of an argument with Piers Morgan. That's a very comfortable position that I'm happy to be in. I think I'd be up there with one of the most irritating cricketers. Tom, we were getting on so well until that question. <laughs> you boys are going to get absolutely hammered. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who interview some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avatar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the TWS Sports Podcast. Today, uh, I'm also joined by uh, my friends, Harvey and Avatar. Hello. Hello. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sports men and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is an actor, comedian, TV presenter and sports fan. Let the paddy meet the beginners. You know, when you've introduced when you were talking there in your introduction and you said um, this is for top sports men and women, and then you introduced me, you realize people will be turning this off now. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were expecting Tom Daly to pop up or something like that and they've got me. <laughs> uh, 
It's okay. Good morning. How are you, lads? Are you okay? Yeah. Good, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Good, good. I'm glad to be here anyhow. Yeah, it's an honour talking to you. We'd like to start our podcast with some quickfire questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? Oh, God, here we go. Go on, then. <laughs> Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Uh, oh, in my phone book? It'd probably be um, Robbie Williams, but the most famous person I've ever met would be Robert De Niro, the actor. I accidentally ended up having uh, a dinner with him one night in London. And um, I don't know who your two guys' heroes are, but for me, when I was growing up, Robert De Niro was like, you know, he's still a big film star now, but he was in all the films I loved. So I just kind of sat there at the table with him and I never said a word because I was so nervous. And I was with uh, Peter Kay at the time. So me and Peter were just... <coughs> nudging each other's legs under the table, going, it's Robert De Niro, I can't believe it's Robert De Niro, it's Raging Bull. And uh, so that was the most famous person I've ever, ever met. But in my phone book, yeah, I'd probably say either Robbie Williams or I'm trying to think about footballers I've got. I don't know, it depends who you call famous, really. I can, sports people, um, Freddie, obviously, he, t- he, he tells me on... Um, quite a lot of occasions that he used to play for England. So he's always telling me that. And then uh, Jamie Redknapp, export. So I've got quite a few people like that, but I'd say probably globally it'll be Robbie Williams. If you could trade large with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Oh, um, well, that's a tricky one, that. Who would it be and why? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I've got a few answers in my head that I don't think we'd be able to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> so, so I'll not go there. I'll keep it nice and family friendly. Um, probably, it'd be, do you know, it'd be interesting to see the world through someone like the Dalai Lama's eyes because of what he speaks about and his message. It'd be interesting to be in his mind and his body to sort of, See how he formulates an answer before he says it. So probably him. But there'd be a lot more other people that I couldn't say on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back to one day in your life, why would it be? What would it be, and why? It would probably be um, the day I found out I were having twins with Leo and Penelope, because. They were our first children, and you don't plan for twins. It just happens. So we were at the hospital doing the scans, and uh, you sort of see a little heartbeat of a baby for the first time ever. And uh, it was such a lovely feeling, that. And then the nurse saying, oh, hang on a minute, there's another heartbeat there. So we found out we had twins, and we were so happy. And everyone were crying, but it was tears of happiness. And we drove home in the car, and we were... We were absolutely buzzing. So I think as a moment in time where you're filled with pure happiness and joy, it would be finding out that our, uh, we were having twins. We know you are a big sports fan and we would like to start a podcast off by talking about sport. As a child, did you have any sporting heroes and what is your earliest memory of sport? Well, 
I think I love football, but my earliest my earliest memory probably was football. Uh, just watching it at my mate's house, he had an old black and white telly. God, I sound ancient saying that, but uh, <laughs> and we uh, we just watched back then. It were it were anything that were on really because now sports, particularly football, God, you can watch that anywhere, can't you? Pretty much any time of the day. There's always a game streaming somewhere in the world. But back then, it was literally on a Saturday afternoon on one channel and that was it and whoever were playing it could be Wolverhampton Wanderers versus Stoke City it didn't matter you just watched it and then I sort of remember seeing bits of the uh, World Cup in the I think it was 80 I'm not sure if it's 82 or 83 I might be totally wrong with that but I remember that England playing in that and watching that at my uncle's house again on the TV uh, but not understanding it too much. Uh, um, so they were the earliest memories of seeing it on the telly, but my problem is sporting hero when I was younger was nothing to do with football. It was uh, a guy called Daley Thompson, uh, who was an athlete, and he was like track and field athlete. But I remember being a kid and seeing him, he almost looked like, like um, a movie star. You know, and he, he had a lot of charisma about him. So whenever he popped up on the TV, it wasn't so much about the events he was winning and how well he was doing. It was just him as a person, how he used to speak and carry himself and how he used to dress. And I thought, God, he's really cool. Him. So he was, he was someone I... And then back then, you, you wouldn't know this, you're too young, you two, but there used to be a, a computer system called an Amstrad. So there was an Amstrad, then there were a Spectrum, and a Commodore, and they were the three gaming systems that everyone used to have back in the day, but they were really old-fashioned and dated. But you could buy a limited number of games from them. There used to be a game called Daily Thompson's Decathlon, and you could play as Daily Thompson. So I used to, I, I had that game, and I used to play that in my bedroom. So, yeah, he was kind of someone who was a, a sporting idol for me, but not necessarily because of the sports he did, just him as a person. Um, the one that I actually recognised on that list was the Commodore. I actually found that out uh, via YouTube. So. <laughs> well, you can buy now. Uh, what what gaming systems do you two have? Is it a PlayStation or an Xbox or something? I have a PS4. Um... I have a PS4 and also a PS5. Right, okay. Oh, wow. So, oh, oh, so, oh, hello. Showing off, are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, those two gaming systems, you can now download old Commodore games and Amstrad games and Spectrum games. I think there's a there's an app or something you put on there. It'll be good for you to look at those games so you can see the kind of <laughs> games we had to play back in the day. You know, all, all games now like, uh, you know, Fortnite and Call of Duty and even when I watch my kids playing on Minecraft and Roblox and games like that, it blows me away at what they can do on them. Back then, it was so basic. We even used a thing back in the day called a joystick. I don't know if you know what one of them is. Yeah, yeah. they still have one. Yeah, yeah, you've got a pad, haven't you? So we had a joystick and a little button on the top that you used as your sort of trigger to shoot. And that was it. But, uh, yeah, if you can download a few games from the old school era, have a look at them. Yeah, well, okay, you probably be bored in about 30 seconds of playing them. You can get most of them on a, an app called PlayStation now. It's really good. Oh, can you? Yeah. Oh, PlayStation. PlayStation Now. 
I'm just going to write that down. Hang on. <laughs> I'll bore my kids to tears with that now. Later on, showing them all the old games, PlayStation. Now, right, I've got that. Right. That's a top tip. I like that. <laughs> Bolton had a successful spell in the late 90s, gaining promotion to the Premiership and reaching the final of the League Cup. Do you think Bolton can reach these heights again? Oh, it'll be tricky. I mean, what's interesting about that, where you were saying the late 90s, it's it's come apparent to me that doesn't seem that far away ago. And you two probably weren't even born, were you? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm like, oh, my God. God, blimey. Yeah, so back then it was one of them moments where everything clicked into place at once with, with a club. And it just worked. So you had an owner, Eddie Davis, who was who had a bit of money and was putting it into the club. You had Sam Allardyce, who was a manager who was kind of really switched on at the time. And what Sam Allardyce was good at was getting players in who everyone would thought were past the best. So you had players like Ivan Campbell, who was at Real Madrid, you know, and and Joy Keff and all these. Uh, and JJ Koch, all these players who were were fantastic, but it, they were deemed in other people's eyes as past the best. So Sam went out and got players like that and brought them in, and integrated them with a a predominantly British Bolton squad, and mixed up. And, and you know, everyone talks about Sam Allardyce being sort of a, an old school manager and a, a long ball manager and what have you. But back then. You know, he introduced things like sporting psychologists at the club and and all the best medical staff and backroom teams and everything else. And it showed and, you know, we kicked on. But what happened was we got, we, we started getting to the dizzy heights of looking at Champions League spot in the league. And uh, again, I don't know the politics of what happens with a football club, the ins and outs of it, but all of a sudden the money stopped and then a player leaves then another player leaves and it starts you can sort of slowly see that decline and the thing with football now which is um, you know if you look at a team now like for instance were you lot of Wolverhampton Wanderers and they're absolutely flying you know I remember Wolves being like Bolton back in the day you know they were struggling my mate Steve, Steve Edge who was in Phoenix Knights he's a big Wolverhampton uh, Wanderers fan but look where they are now, so how quickly it changes. So Bolton, were you saying, could they do it again? If you asked me now this second, I'd say probably it would never happen again. But who knows? Further down the line, who knows? It's, it's all about investment in football clubs now. It's all about money and bringing people in. And you never know if they have a big influx of cash. They could certainly get back to where they are. But at, at this moment in time, there's no chance. We read that you have previously said that you had a great childhood, but also a tough one. And you say you grew up with double nothing. What was your childhood like? <laughs> I did grow up with double nothing. You're right, Tom. But, um, there's an old saying from back in the day called "We were, say people say we were poor, but we were happy," and and that's exactly how my childhood was. So. When you don't have anything, you don't miss it. So 
you can be envious of things. And if someone, for instance, says, oh, I've got, like, we were talking about old, old uh, computers, so I've got a Spectrum or I've got a new BMX or, you know, what I've got a new pair of trainers. You can be envious and jealous and go, oh, I've got to love them. But you don't necessarily miss, miss not having them because you've never had them. So all my bikes, for instance, growing up, were all sort of um, mashups of different bikes put together. Or you'd swap bikes with friends and stuff because everyone in the area I grew up were, were, were the same as us. No, no one had any money. So you all swapped things and traded stuff all the time. So you'd swap bikes, you'd swap toys, you'd swap magazines. And it was great and it was good. And weirdly enough, um, not having much, I remember when I got my first ever car. Now, my first car was a Mark II Ford Escort, and I was about 16 or 17 at the time, and it cost 90 quid, this car. And I'd saved up, and I'd managed to get this 90 quid together, and the car was an absolute wreck. It was terrible. It broke down all the time. It wasn't safe, but it was mine. And, uh, and even though it was an absolute wreck, this car, I looked after it so much because I knew how valuable it was having something like that. So it taught me the value of things, not having much. So even now when I'm older, like it's difficult, like, you know, you two, like you were saying about, you've got your playstations and what, and what have you. Um, my two oldest kids, Leo and Penelope, they've got the little, um, what they call is it? Is it not, not the ones where they come up, the ends come off. You know the game system where the two ends snap off the end? A Nintendo, oh, Switch. Nintendo Switch. Yeah, they've got a Nintendo Switch. Thank God you two know this because I'd be struggling. They've got a Nintendo <laughs> Switch, but they've got the one where the ends don't come off. So the Nintendo own... Lite, that that's one's called. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yes, they've got a Nintendo Lite. And even that, you know, I kind of look at them, I think, God, blind it. I'd have loved to have had some of that when I were, when I were a kid. And the games they've got on there, God, they... They, they, they blow me away. There's some of these games. They're into playing at the minute on, on the Switch. Um, the Mario World, the Mario World Builders and all that carry on. So they play all them. Yeah. And I watch them play and it totally loses me. But but equating that to my, my childhood is like chalk and cheese. But but you can't deny if someone wants that and you can and you can get them, then I think have it because it's 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 a good thing and it makes you happy. But when you didn't have it. You, you, as well as having double nothing, then you're double happy because you, you, you're so grateful at getting something like that. You hosted a very successful TV dating show called Take Me Out, but that wasn't your first experience of being on a dating show, was it? Can you tell us a little bit about a TV show called God's Gift? <laughs> So back in the day, um, I used to work as a lifeguard in a leisure centre. And every now and again in the staff room, they'd put a notice up on the on the staff notice board. It could be anything. It could be uh, there's a walk out next week up some local uh, countryside or there's a night out coming or this, that and the other. And what TV companies do, they'll send stuff out to businesses and you put them up on the staff notice board, or they used to do back in the day. And and Granada, which was round the corner in Manchester from where we worked, sent a notice saying lifeguards wanted for dating show. So me and all my friends, you know, God, I were only young at the time, probably 20, 21, something like that. 
Um, we just thought this will be fun and it's good to try and get on telly because, again, even now, how the world's changed, like pretty much everyone's on telly now or you can get, you do your own YouTube channel or anything else. Well, when mm. I was younger, telly was like a sort of, wow, imagine if you can get on TV. It was like a massive thing. There were none of these like uh, Love Island programs and, and like I say, YouTube ne- never existed, you know. So it was a big deal to be on telly. So we all went down to uh, Granada and we had to be interviewed for this uh, tip, this God's Gift dating show. And there was only me got accepted. Now, at the time, my mates were gutted and I was like really happy. I was going, yes, I've made it and, and all that. And your mates are all taking the mickey out of each other. Obviously, they got they looked out by not being accepted because <laughs> they never ended up on the show and I did. So I did it, and it was it was so mad. They had me dancing about in a pair of black silk boxer shorts <laughs> with all these girls clapping along. Uh, and it used to be on, I think, at like 12 o'clock at night on ITV. So I did that, and I totally forgot about it. And then I got on with my life. And then again, a lad who I mentioned who's from Wolves, who's from Canuck, actually, Steve Edge. He worked, his mate worked in a programme called Before They Were Famous, which used to be on years ago, and they found the footage because I'd totally forgot I'd even done it myself. And it went on the show, and then that writ, then everyone, you know, every interview I did, if I went on the Jonathan Ross show, they'd show a clip of it. If I went on whoever's show, they'd show a clip of it. But the good thing about doing that show is when I started hosting Take Me Out, and some of the lads were, were really nervous on that show because they have to come down this lift and all these girls would be stood there and a studio audience and it was nerve-wracking for them. So they'd come out and I'd, they'd be shaking. So I used to tell them in rehearsals about my God's gift story and about, you know, the fact that I was dancing around in a pair of silk underpants on telly you know, by myself. I said, don't worry, at least you've got your clothes on and I'm there with you, sort of guiding you through the round. So, yeah, that was my first ever uh, step into telly was that God's Gift dating show. And it used to be hosted by the girl who does Strictly now, Claudia Winkleman at the time. So even now when I see Claudia, we we have a laugh about that from back in the day. You went to Mount St. Joseph's School with Peter Kay. How important was that friendship with Peter and how did you, the idea of working together happen? Well, because we went to the same school and we were friends, we do we go around to each other's houses. Now, we were totally different kids as in, I used to love playing out and football and climbing and just messing about in general on the streets. And Peter was more, he used to like to stay, he used to stay in and watch lots of films and listen to lots of music and stuff. So even though we were totally different, we, we had a very, very similar sense of humour. So we'd always make each other laugh. So I used to go around to his house and then back then, because he because he'd listened, we'd watched so many films and listened to so much music, he had a really good knowledge of all that. So he put films on for me, because again, when we were younger, you had things like videotapes, which you put into video players, and films, no, you can stream them, can't you? You can watch whatever you want, pretty much whenever you want. Well, back then you couldn't, so it was quite a rare treat. So I never used to see that many films unless I went around to Peter's house. So he'd play bits of comedy films, like there used to be films you probably won't know them back in the day, 
films like Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and stuff like that, and Belial's Cop and, and Cannonball Run and all these films from back in the day, which your teachers will probably know what I'm talking about. And, um, and um, so we'd watch them, and then he used to do a lot of writing. He'd write little, little films and little uh, sketches and what have you. So we'd act them out in the bedroom, just two kids playing together, really, and we'd have a lot of fun doing it. And I used to love that. And whenever I'd leave his house and I'd go back to my mates who would sort of play on the street and what have you, it was deemed as being a bit sort of girly doing all that when we were kids. It was like, oh, what are you doing that for? That's like a girly thing to do, you know? So I never used to speak about it much. Um, but I'd really look forward to going to his house and doing that. And I kind of denied myself that happiness of doing that more often because I wanted to be seen as more of a, a lad's lad and playing with my mates and all the usual stuff you get up to on the streets. And uh, so through all our life, from leaving school, we used to do that. And then our lives drifted apart. And then we met up again by chance at, at Bolton College, where Peter was doing a course there involving media, film training, all this kind of stuff. And I think I was doing a a science course or something at the time. I can't remember what I was doing, but uh, we just got friends again and he was doing stand-up comedy. So I'd go along with him to the clubs and see what he did. So he, he was getting paid for it. And at the time, I think, as well as doing college, I used to work at Morrison Supermarkets stacking shelves and I worked on building sites as well. And I, and I, I weren't earning a lot of money. And when I saw the money you were getting for doing that on stage, I thought, God, i I reckon I could do that. So I, I you used to, it, with comedy and stand-up, when you first start off, you, you don't get paid. You do things called open spots. So you go along to a club on a certain night and they'll let you do your stuff on stage, <clears throat> but you won't get paid for it. Uh, so it's just to try it out for yourself. Now, a lot of people do open spots and they never do them again because they get that terrified or it goes that bad for them and they just leave it. And other people kind of do sort of all right and then they'll kick on and they'll persevere and they'll persevere and they get better and better. And with me, my first couple were at Lancaster University and they went they went quite well. So I just kicked on from there really and that's what got me into it. And then obviously Peter started doing a bit of telly, so I'd do that with him. But for me, it was always a hobby. I'd never think of it as a career. So I'd just do little bits of telly with him and carry on working at the leisure centre. And I was still working at the, the Leisure Centre when we were doing uh, Phoenix Nights, both series. And I only left when we did a series called Max and Paddy. And again, I realise I'm talking about TV shows here that you two probably have never heard of in your life. I've heard of it. Yeah. Oh, have you heard of it? Go oh, good. I feel slightly cool now. <laughs> you have been involved in a number of sporting TV shows, such as Sports Relief, Inside Wayne Rooney, Soccer Aid, and Question of Sport. Do you enjoy doing sports shows on TV, and what has been your favourite? I love I love all sports, and that's why when Question of Sport came around, I felt sometimes with a lot of shows like that, people go, you've got to be a sports person to do it. And you don't, you know, Question of Sport started off uh, being hosted by people who were nothing to do with sport. They just used to host sporting things. So loving sport as I did and being passionate about it, I was like, 
buzzing when they asked me about that and I couldn't wait to start on it because the team captains, they're the ones who really need to know about sport a lot. All I do is read the questions and chat to guests. So it's great being in and around all those sports people. But I'd say the one I enjoy the most, especially when I first started doing it, was Soccer Aid. Because Soccer Aid gave me a chance to play football on, uh, at Old Trafford. And even though I'm a Bolton fan, playing at a full house at Old Trafford is, is an amazing experience. But I'd be on the pitch, you know, and I'd be looking around me and they'd be like, Zidane. Ronaldinho, you know, Ryan Giggs, Roy Keane, Berbatov, Shevchenko, you know, Dida, all these like Seedorf. I mean, the list goes on. All these mega star players, you know, David Beckham were at the last one, where you're going, I can't believe I'm actually competing against these. And I always remember I was playing in one game and I had Jamie Carragher beside me. We were in defence. And uh, Ronaldinho was running towards me with the ball. And Jamie Carragher was screaming at me to, to, tackle, to tackle him. And I'm going, Jamie, it's Ronaldinho, for God's sake. <laughs> dating show. You know, and he was that wound up with me because I couldn't get the ball off Ronaldinho. And I was like, He's one of Brazil's greatest players ever, and you're asking me to bloody take the ball off him. But but those <laughs> moments were you kind of pinch yourself, and and also with soccer aid, then you meet loads of people who aren't who aren't sports people, but you'd never get a chance to meet like you know like likes of Will Ferrell and Mike Myers and all these you know famous actors and comedians and Woody Olson, and I'm like, and then you just all. During the week, you're just all chilling out together in a hotel and everyone's in shorts and flip-flops. There's no words and graces and everyone's having a beer or a glass of wine or, you know, whatever. Because uh, trust me, a lot of sports people, they'll tell you they're drinking Lucas Aid Isotonic. They're not. Yeah, so being in and around that, and I've done it, God, for over 10 years. It used to be every, ten, every two years we played it. It's every year now. I've, I've got some amazing memories, you know, and, and I've had professional footballers telling me they're jealous that I've played in them those games. I remember Kevin Davis used to be a striker at Bolton Wanderers when I lived in Bolton. He came around my house one day for a coffee and he would tell me how he'd give his right arm to be on a football pitch with, with uh, Zinedine Zidane. And I thought, God, I've, I've done that, you know. So you, as well as raising like, tens of millions of pounds for UNICEF, which is why we do it. The other side, you go, God, I cannot believe how lucky I am to be a part of this, you know. So I, I love Soccer Aid. I always will do. One of your most successful shows was the TV programme, Take Me Out. Is, is that a show you enjoyed doing? Yeah, I did. And do you know, interestingly, with Take Me Out, even with younger people now, when I'm out and about, most young people still say, no, like it, no, light it, or they'll go, yeah. <laughs> let the sausage see the roll and all that kind of stuff. Still say that to me. No one talks to me about Top Gear or Question of Sport or anything else I do. So that shows you how much of a part of young people's lives that show was growing up, you know, and a lot of people 
again, it makes me feel old. They go, oh, we used to watch it when we were kids and we'd sit there with our mums and dads or whatever. And I'd be thinking, bloody hell, I'm not that old, am I? But uh, <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun to do. It was quite a... It was quite a hard show to do because there was a lot for there was a lot for, for me to concentrate on and remember, and because it was ad libbed most of the show, which is uh, ad libbed. I don't know if you know that's like you sort of just have to make stuff up off the cuff out your head. Because I never knew what the girls were going to say and I never knew what the lads were going to say, so I had to concentrate all the time on that show. Um, just hold on, lads. I don't know if you can hear that. It's my bloody doorbell comes through my phone. Let me turn it off. Oh, it's been answered. Good. Right there, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I used to have to concentrate and be on the ball so much. And it used to take about three and a half hours to record, and even though on the telly it was on for about 45 minutes. But again, I did that show for 10 years. And you become a, you become a little family, the people you work with. So all the camera people are the same and all the, the sound people are the same and the makeup and the lighting and... You get, you get to know everyone, you get used to them over the years and you miss them when you stop doing it. But in TV, you, you always end up still working with people and seeing people on other shows as you go on. But uh, yeah, it's nice that younger people still talk to me about that show. You are well known, you know, for your catchphrase on Take Me Out. What was your favourite catchphrase? Oh, well, the most famous one is no like it, no light it. That's the most famous one. But when I used to do that, let the sausage see the roll or let the bubble see the bath and all those ones, I used to really like them because we'd challenge ourselves with coming up with some really good ones. So we'd go, we'd do, so some shows we'd go, right, we're just going to do loads of catchphrases about biscuits. So it'd be, let the custard see the cream. Let the chocolate <laughs> see the digestive. So we do all that. And then another show, we go, right, we're going to do takeaway food, you know. So it'd be like, let the sweet see the sour and all that kind of stuff. So those are the favourite ones I used to like doing. But the most famous one is definitely no likey, no lighty. And like I was saying before, I still get shouted that at me on the street at least two or three times a day by someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you have some very interesting contestants on the show. Do you have any that stand out, or what was your funniest moment? Uh, <laughs> I like how you've said that, though, Tom. Interesting. <laughs> Good way of saying that. Uh, yeah, we have had some interesting people on over the years. <clears throat> I think the, <clears throat> the ones that stand out for me was one right from my first ever series, and it was a guy called Tambo from Scotland. That was his nickname. And he turned up, and I've never seen anything like this in my life. He had, he bleached his hair white. He had a white suit on with white shoes, white socks, white tie. And he was an absolute, uh, like, uh, character. And this guy, even though he was dressed in this way, he didn't care. And he was so kind of um, sure of himself and everything else. And I had an idea. I thought, God, he's going to black out. I know he is. Um, And he practically nearly blacked out from walking out of the lift, which very rarely happens. But I think he survived to the next round and he got a blackout. But, yeah, people like that who come on, 
Because you can have people who come on take me out who are sort of like, you know, if you look at programs like Love Island now, where everyone's like absolutely drop dead gorgeous, all the guys are full of muscles and they've got dead white teeth and all the girls have got longer and gorgeous bodies and what have you. Well, take me out was more about everybody. Do you know what I mean? So every, there was all different shapes and sizes on Take Me Out, and that's what I loved about it. It wasn't like everyone were perfect because out in the world, no one's perfect, you know, and that 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 doesn't exist. So I'm glad Take Me Out had all shapes and sizes on. Uh, so the, so with that in mind, all the lads were all different types of lads. So you'd have lads like Tambo who were all dressed in white suits and just being really loud and, and crazy all around the stage, and then you'd get... Other lads who were dead nervous and quiet, but they'd slowly come out the shell as, as they did better during the game and what have you. So, um, but yeah, for me, I think it's more the characters. And the girls, again, because I do so many shows with the girls, you get to know them. And you're almost a bit a bit uh, gutted when they get a date because you become, mm. you become sort of like a, a father figure to them and you're putting your arm around them, you're having a laugh with them. So when they go off then on a date, Mm. you're going oh I'm never going to see her again no that's it she's gone and she was really funny or she was a good character and what have you but uh, yeah we had a lot of fun making it uh, you know how the TV show is a uh, Top Gear with um, uh, Freddie Fentoff and Richard uh, Russell do you enjoy Chris Harris oh Chris Harris do you enjoy doing the show and what do you enjoy uh, most well, firstly, can I say I've really enjoyed you getting Chris Harris's name wrong. Thank you. No one can ever remember Chris's name, and we like that. We're constantly reminding him about that. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, the three of us, you know, much like you three, when you're friends, it shows, you know. So when you're on telly working on a programme, mm. if you don't get on, people notice it and they can tell. And they can tell it's just it's pretend for the cameras and that you're faking it. So mm-hmm. us three, when we first got together off camera, they did, they did a day with us where we had to drive a car and they'd film it. And it never, never got shown on telly. Just wanted to see how we worked together. And straight away, taking the mickey out of each other and, and we, we all wanted to win the race and this, that and the other. So it just worked really well. And we get on so well now, and we've just come back from a trip, um, which you'll see on this new series, in Miami. And we'd, I'd, I'd never been before. <laughs> and, the, and the thing about us three working together is when we stop working and we're away filming, we're still together. So it shows you the kind of relationship we have. So we all still go out for meals together, you know, because a lot of people, when they finish working on telly, they don't speak outside of telly because they don't have that chemistry and they don't have that relationship where we do. And again, that's why it, it's doing so well and people enjoy it because they can see we're having a laugh with each other as well, you know. Mm. And don't get me wrong, there's days when we want to kick each other's heads in. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, that's that. it's like that in all, in all uh, good matey relationships. I want to ask you a question about Millie with a... <laughs> They seem to run your household. Can you explain to our listeners who that is and 
will you be able to ever go to the toilet on your own ever again? Oh my god! Well, firstly, let me look right because normally, normally he's uh, milling about around my feet. So Millie or Millie with a Millie with a Willie was a stray cat we found, and my eldest daughter Penelope called the cat Millie, but mm. we didn't know if Millie was a boy or a girl. So the name stuck, and when we went to the vets and we adopted the cat and got, did all its little checks and made sure it, you know, healthy and all the rest of it, we found out he was a boy. But my daughter had already called him Millie, so we couldn't change his name. So now it was like, well, it's Millie with a willy. And Millie, <laughs> with, a willy, Millie with a willy is usually... I can't believe he's not here now sort of around me. He's always around me, so no matter... If I go for a poo, the <laughs> walking at me, right? So, so I have to sit there and this cat's just looking at me and I'm thinking, not even the fact that he's looking at me, I'm like, it stinks in here. How's it, how's it, how can it stand it with its smell? But yeah, yeah love the cat and, uh, and my three children love the cat and it's a part of our family now, so... If I put a picture of put a picture of him on Instagram or anything like that, people genuinely want to know more about the cat. So I don't know. I'm, one day I might set up uh, his own Instagram account or something like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if he if he pops in while we're chatting, I'll uh, I'll bring him up and I'll let you have a look at him. But he's not about at the minute. The Henshaws Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. You have three autistic children. As a parent, when would you say you first saw a difference in your children compared to other children of similar age? Um, <clears throat> well, look, you, you three know better than anyone else all about that. And, and you'll know that everyone's different, aren't they? And everyone, everyone has different things they do at different ages. So the real thing for us with the twins when they were first born, Leo and Penelope, not so much with Felicity because we'd already had Leo and Penelope then, so we knew things. But not knowing anything at all about autism at all, we we weren't aware of the things to sort of uh, look out for or think, oh, that's a little bit different to how someone else would do things and, you know, a different way of looking at things. We never knew any of that. And and uh, when they were about... Three, because they 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 were both uh, they both uh, non-verbal. They didn't speak until they were kind of around about five, and uh, um, we took them to a nursery in Bolton to, to see about putting them in there. And at the time, all the kids were sat around the table with little knives and forks and cups, and they were having their dinner and drinking and eating and all that. And I remember saying to me, "Why am I going? God, these kids are advanced here. I can't believe they're doing all this." But it wasn't anything, that's what, what should have been doing for that age at that time, you see. But we didn't know that because we, we, we didn't know anyone else who had young children. So 
that was like, oh, well, uh, why are our children not doing that like that? So that was the first thing where we started thinking about stuff. And then little things happen. And like you say, with the speech, it wasn't, it didn't come on as quickly as it would have done with another child. So that's, that's how we sort of come to notice the development wasn't the same as other children at their age. And then obviously we went and we had a, um, we, we seen a paediatrician and, and they went in and they assessed everything and we got, we got the diagnosis. And then as soon as we got that diagnosis, <clears throat> it was the best thing ever for us because we understood it then and we knew what was going on. So we were so, even though it's, it's a bit of a one of them moments, you go, oh, God, right, okay, God, I've never heard of this this uh, autism and I've never heard of uh, anything about it apart from what I've seen on films, which is most of the time complete nonsense. Um, so we had to learn a lot about it and, and find out more about it and understand how our children, uh, what makes them happy, what doesn't make them happy. And now, you know, they're absolutely flying at school. They're doing, you know, Penelope's the top of her class with her results. Leo's doing amazing. You know, the speech is is, is really good. You know, all the stuff, and we were talking before about the, the uh, little Nintendo lights and all, all the gaming stuff they have. They can play it. They understand it. I, I, if I pick up any of them gaming systems now, I struggle turning them on, never mind playing them. <laughs> so they're learning me stuff as well now. And uh, even with stuff they look at on YouTube and what have you. But but I love it. I love having three children with autism because they teach me so, so much about the world that I wouldn't necessarily see. I wouldn't understand it the way they do. And I love seeing their point of view on things. And I love understanding it more. And also as well, I kind of think if every everyone on earth was autistic, the world we well, we won't be in we wouldn't have problems, we won't have wars and all this carry on and you know and 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 everyone arguing all the time and not getting along with each other, the world would be definitely a better place. So I consider myself very lucky having three children with autism and being around them all the time because they make me better as well in my everyday life. Um, can, I, can I ask you two a question while I've got here? Is that yeah, okay? Sure. Sure. So, hang on, let me get a little drink of my coffee. So, <clears throat> with with your autism, did your mums and dads tell you that at a certain age? Or mm. did you just, were you aware of it yourselves? Or how did it uh, come about? I'll answer it first. So, basically, from my childhood, I always felt like I was different. Um, especially because a lot of problems throughout my childhood with my autism. I used to have really big anger issues, but it's kind of like decreased, but it used to be worse in my childhood because I didn't know how to control my anger. And I used to get like very agitated, especially with maths, because maths has been like my weak point all my life. I still struggle to this day and I try to revise as, as possible. But um, I got told that I was on the autistic spectrum later in my childhood. So I always get the year wrong, but I didn't find out until like late primary school. Right. Maybe like I, year five or six. Like I, I didn't know. So then, yeah, my parents ended up telling me, but I found out late. So I didn't realise I was autistic. And when you found out, did you 
was it like, oh, well, at least we used to get angry at things, like you say, when maths did you kind of think, oh, well, thank the Lord, now I know why I'm getting angry. And it helped you to deal with that better. Yeah, and in a sense. And then, so it's kind of half like a shock because throughout, throughout my childhood as well, it kind of like, it was both, I, I always say it's about my autumn to this day, having autumn is both a burden and a blessing. Because um, like, I also, because I used to have like very, lots of problems in my childhood to do with also other people's because some of them like bullies and then, it was really hard for me in my childhood because I, I at some point, which I regret doing, I actually became a bully for a short time because how people acted was kind of narcissistic. So like sometimes yeah. I didn't want to do it. And then they kept on forcing me to do things. And no matter what I did, there was always consequences. So yeah. it really affected my mental health. And um, so, yeah. And then that's why I've always got used to kind of actually appreciating I had autism over, over the years, really. I bet it's, 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 now, when you think, right, we're all here chatting on this podcast and the stuff you're all doing now, when you think about the moments from your childhood, it's, it's, it's like a million miles away, isn't it, to where you are now, which is a really amazing thing, you know, to be doing this from what you were just saying then about bullying and then being on the other side of that and being angry with things and understanding things or not understanding things to now doing something like this. And getting on with your life, you know, for me as a parent, that's uh, amazing to hear. Thank you. You are a very popular celebrity in the UK. Did you ever feel nervous to take your children out in public because everyone would see Paddy McGuinness and possibly your children acting differently? Um, <clears throat> no, I, I would, doing the job I do, and I've done this job for over 20 years now, so you kind of even though you get used to <clears throat> being out and about with people and how they are with you with selfies and stuff like that. Uh, well, I'll tell you how old I am. When I first started getting recognised, it, it was autographs you used to sign. It wasn't selfies. They came on later on as phones came out and everything else. So you get used to it. But what, what also happens is you, you, you don't realise it, but you start becoming a bit more insular. So you start coming a bit more in your own shell. So if I go out anywhere now... Like if I go to a restaurant and what have you, and not everyone's like this in telly. Some people are a bit more out there. But I kind of, if I walk in a restaurant, I've got my head down and I don't make eye contact with people. And I'll go and sit down as far in the back of the room as possible. And it, once I've sat down and ordered my food, I can relax then. Because I'm just, I'm still, I'm, I'm even though the job I do, believe it or not, I'm still quite a shy person. So I still struggle when I go in rooms full of people and especially when I know they're all looking at me and, you know, and it's always nice. It's always, no one's ever, you know, disrespectful or anything like that. It's always nice, but I'm aware of it. So then with that and then going out with my kids and being aware of their needs and what, what has to be put in place, then I became doubly, doubly nervous about things and stressed a lot. Whereas naturally, the more we go out with the kids, that's that drops down a little bit. But for instance, I don't know how it is with you two, but my my lad Leo really struggles with um, <clears throat> you know the hand dryers in toilets. So if that goes off, it's too too much for him. That so if we ever 
you know, if we were ever out on a car journey and say we'd stop at a service station and he wanted a wee or something like that, and we'd go in the toilet together, I'd always be thinking, I would always be trying to rush him a little bit, even though he wasn't aware I were rushing him, because I would just that conscious of, I couldn't turn around to everyone in that toilet and say, no one wash their hands. Do you know what I mean? Because you just can't do that, can you? So I'd be praying no one would be washing their hands and drying them by the time I got Leo in and out. So things like that still affect me when I'm out and about. But that's not that's not in a sense of worrying what other people are thinking. It's just more I don't want to, I don't want him to be upset. And when you're a parent, the last thing you want to do is seeing your kids upset, you know, because it's heartbreaking when that happens. But on the other side of things, when that has happened and he has got upset, as soon as I've got him out to the toilet and, you know, he's okay again, you know, I can calm him down pretty quickly. So it's it's just a brief moment, but you become aware of that. You know, there's probably things you two don't like uh, and your mums and dads will sort of do stuff around that, you know. So it's just part of part, parcel of being a parent, really. So it isn't so much about the the autism and what people think when things are happening it's more about not wanting to put the children under stress if if you can help it um honestly with leo i could relate to that earlier because like throughout my childhood i've been very different like sensory and stuff because uh, i've also noticed within my autism it's quite complex like i've kind of like changed a lot so like, in the past there'd be like stuff i didn't like but now i've learned to like them because uh, like with loud noises, some I can cope with now, but in the past, there's like loads of times where I had to put my fingers in my ear because like it really, I couldn't cope with it. You know, we, we dealt with all that as well. And like yourself, they learned to to overcome that and deal with that. And and that's not a, an issue anymore now, you know. So, you know, some things you'll, you, you can deal with better, can't you? And then other things take a little bit longer and some things might, I never change. But that's just every everyone's got that in their lives. Everyone's got things they wish they could, you know. I I didn't like flying for a long time, you know, and I couldn't get my head around that. So when I see someone talking about, oh, I can't wait to get on a plane and go off on my holidays, I used to think, God, what the hell do you want to get on an aeroplane for? I can't think of anything worse. But that's just how I thought, you know. So that's how you, I look at things now. Is that everyone's got their own thing, aren't they? What they like and they dislike. And it's just about coping with it, really. You and your family recently did a documentary all about autism. Were you nervous about people seeing this documentary? And why did you decide to do it? Well, I wasn't nervous about people seeing the documentary because things like even us now chatting, you, you know, you've just been chatting about some stuff from your childhood there and people listening to this. Mainly mums and dads, might I add, will learn a lot from that. So for me, it wasn't so much about the worry of it going on and what people think. It was more about I didn't doing that documentary was kind of my kids didn't have a say in whether they wanted to do it or not. So I was it, it took about four years to make, and I was always I was always aware of my children being in it. So how we did it in the end is because I think it's important to sort of see the kids at home and see them playing and all the rest of it. So, again, people don't think, oh, what is autism? Is it some, 
well, you know, weird and wonderful thing we don't know about and what goes on behind closed doors. It's just a normal family, you know. We just do things a little bit different to other people. You know, our meal times might not be the same as another person, but we still do meal times. So we did it in a way where you could sort of see the children, but you couldn't see the face. And that was the, that's how we came to do it. Um, but what's with us as parents, again, you know, like I was saying about what you spoke about with your childhood, that's great to hear for someone like me because we're always learning stuff and it's always good to get help about things or ask people about things. So by that, doing, doing the documentary, we learned a lot of stuff as well and we got help with things. People watching it got help. And also as well, sometimes you can feel as though there's only you in that situation, you know, but there's not. There's millions of other people in the same situation. When you get that sense of other people are, are going through what you're going through and they understand it and they've, they've, they've had the same ups and the, and the same downs, it's something nice about feeling part of that team, you know what I mean? So it worked really well and, and you know, we're in on day with messages after the show about people saying how much they enjoyed it and how much they learned stuff and 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 people who were who are parents whose children aren't autistic learned a lot as well you know so they said they'll alter their behavior when they're out and about and if they see you know you know whatever have a lady or a toilet crying at the hand dryer you know noise or having a meltdown in a supermarket for whatever reason they'll understand a bit more about why that's happening and it's nothing nothing out of the ordinary, really. Since that documentary, has it been out? Has it helped you as a dad and a husband? What was the recognition yeah. like from reaction like from the public? Well, first of the lads, I'm going to give you the best bit of advice ever here. Us men, and we're all just men here having a chat. Nothing ever helps you being an husband. <laughs> just, just learn that. Just learn to accept you're going to get a lot of things wrong and you're going to be told you're getting a lot of things wrong. And once you can get your head around that, you're happy. So that's the husband side of things sorted out. Just just say yes to lots of things and you'll, you'll, have, <laughs> you'll have an easy life. Um, but yeah, it de- like I was saying before, it definitely helped me. Uh, it helped me as a dad, you know, because I met other people as well. Like, for instance, I'm, I went up to a, a school and met a young lad called Jack, who's autistic. And, you know, speaking to Jack about his mum and dad telling him what he thought, how he thinks about things in his school life, seeing him at school with other pupils and how he interacts and what have you. Because my, you know, my oldest kids, Leo and Penelope, are only eight. So when I speak to teenagers with autism and everything else and they tell me a bit more about their life and what they do now and what they want to do going forward and what they want to do as a career or at home or, you know, meeting a partner or all these things, it's great for me. Because I'm thinking, oh, wow, I'm looking forward to all that and seeing all that for Leo and Penelope and Felicity when she gets older as well. What advice advice would you give to other dads who have an autistic child? I think men, when they think about having children, 
they'll have this idea in their head about what the son or daughter will be like. And if it isn't exactly like that, men can have this habit of feeling a bit like, oh, God, why can't we do this together? And why can't we do that together? And that kind of stress and that kind of thinking, which is the wrong way to think, can get you down. So I'd say accept your children for who they are and learn from your children. You know what I mean? Let them teach you stuff because they're right there. You're living with them. You love each other. And they're the best people to do that for you. So I, I, I wouldn't get et up about, oh, my son's not a fantastic footballer or, you know, my daughter doesn't want to do this in life or that in life. You know, it, just accept them for who they are, really. Your wife also recently got diagnosed with autism. Do you think that helped her to understand and know herself a little bit more? Definitely. I mean... In my, I'm the odd one out in our house. Let me tell you, I, I, I'm, I'm like, uh, I walk around and I'm all these people. I've got three children with autism, a wife with autism, and uh, I think Millie's autistic as well. I think I'm the only one who isn't. <laughs> uh, I feel, I feel left out in our house. But um, yeah, what happened with my wife was. This is a good thing for anyone who's, who, who feels as though something's not adding up for them and they need a bit of help to get that help because my wife went all through her childhood and her, her teenage years and all her schooling knowing she was different from other people and knowing she looked at things differently but never understanding why. And it got her down. <clears throat> it got her down. And she had to cope with things in her life by um, masking a lot and, and pretending to be something she isn't in certain social situations, you know. So when she got the diagnosis for, for her, for Christine, it was like a massive weight off her shoulders. And I remember the first day she got her diagnosis, her coming in and I was really happy for her. You know, it was like a weight off my shoulders again because I was aware of things, Christine, uh, that I never really spoke to her about because I just thought, well, that's her and that's her way of doing things and, and you know, and that's how it is. But um, when she got the diagnosis, it was the best thing ever for her. So I definitely, anyone, anyone listening to this who feels as though that's them, go for a diagnosis, find out because it'll, it'll, stand you in good stead going forward um it is there um is there a certain certain stereotype stereotype about autistic that will you like to get rid of is there a certain stereotype about autism that you like to get rid of uh yeah well i think um films have a have a, have a lot to answer for because again, you two are younger, so it was a film came out in the eighties, uh, which is probably Stone Age times to you two. But there was no, the dinosaurs weren't walking about; they were just people in shell suits. But um, there was a film called Rain Man, which was the only thing that I'd heard that word autism or knew anything about it. And it was an actor called Dustin Hoffman who played an autistic character in it. Now I think that film didn't do any justice to autistic people because 
all it made out that autistic people were any good at was maths and adding up and working out things quicker than other people, which isn't always the case. Uh, you know, there's a, a massive, massive scope of things that people with autism can do in life, whether it's in the personal life or the working life. It isn't all about, I'm autistic, so I must be good on a computer, or I'm autistic, I must be good at doing maths. You know, it isn't always that. So I think that's the stereotype I'd like to get rid of, and I'd like to see more films. And there might be films out there that I'm not aware of now who really shed a light on things, what they're really like, and 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 what people with autism deal with and go through, and how they think a little bit better as well, as opposed to, oh, I can add up or I can remember things. Your men... You mentioned. You mentioned in the interview that you were depressed a few years ago. Did you feel dads need to talk more about autism and what support is out there for parents? Yeah, well, that's the thing with anything like depression. It builds up on you because you don't talk about stuff. And that's how it, and it happens more with men, I think, than women. Because blokes naturally have to be, uh, try and be, you know, uh, leaders and alpha males and I've not got any worries, I'll sort everything out kind of thing. Whereas there's a lot you're taking on in your own brain that you can't get rid of because you're not talking about it. So you're not offloading it to anyone else. Uh, and again, what I talked about earlier about the image of having a child and what you think that child should be like when you're a dad. Uh, little things happen with me. And again, with our children, they had a, a lot of a lot of uh, issues with sleeping at first. So when you're not getting much sleep as a parent, anyhow, it's exhausting and your brain doesn't work properly because you're not getting your rest. So you start thinking differently. And all these things added up with me over the years. So where I uh, I ended up getting really depressed, but I wasn't, I was I didn't know I was. It was other people who tell you because they can see a difference in you. But once I got in with someone properly and started talking to them about it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And that was, again, another reason for doing that documentary because I wanted to be honest with people about how I felt and the things that I'd gone through personally because I knew there'll be other mums and dads out there who've gone through the same thing or are going through the same thing. And hopefully seeing that documentary will help them and make them feel it's not just them on their own experiencing those thoughts. Are you and your wife getting any support to increase increase your understanding of um, autism? autism? Um, not in that sense. I mean, for about, up until they were about, I think, five or six, we never had any help at all. Uh, we had a... Once they got the diagnosis, that's when things changed. Mm. So that's when, uh, you know, people within the local council uh, where we lived, you know, come and see the kids then and they'll assess them at nursery or at school and then they can put things in place now. So so uh, uh, Leo and Penelope ended up having um, one-to-one support in the classroom as well to help them with things. Uh, and that was fantastic for us. And again, once they had that one-to-one support and people around them, much like you lads doing this podcast, they can do anything. You know, anything's possible. 
You just need support around you and that little bit of help. So now as we have that in place, it's great. But, you know, more can be done by the government to, to support people and families. But, uh, you know, that's another story. But, yeah, so now as we have that, it, it, it's, it's uh, a godsend. You and your wife have just started your own podcast called Table Talk. What is your podcast about? Do you enjoy it? And can, can we be guests on your podcast and talk about our, our own autism? Well, firstly, yeah, of course you can. Uh, we're going to set some new ones up for later on in the year. So, yeah, you, you three are welcome on. No problem at all. We'll do it the same way as we're doing this. Uh, and the reason we did the podcast is we learned from the documentary. A lot of people got in touch with us whose uh, children had different kinds of needs uh, outside of autism. So for us, we're like, oh, right, OK. We didn't know, you know, uh, we didn't know anything about this or that. So we started looking into it. And then we kind of thought, well, how do other families cope, for instance, around mealtime, how do they cope with holidays, how do they cope with certain things in their life? So we got mums and dads on the podcast just to talk about their life and their children and stuff. So, again, it's a learning curve for us, but for the people listening to it, it's a learning curve for them as well. And, again, it's knowing people are on their own. We're all in this together. And it's a, good, a great thing knowing you've got a team around you of people who are all willing you on and, and hoping the best for you in life and everything else. So, yeah. But, yeah, you can definitely come on again. You can come on our podcast. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to quickly add this question on because I was, I was telling my taxi driver about that I was going to chat to you today and he was actually really intrigued and all. Um, but uh, during, during the time in Top Gear... What would you say is your favourite car that you drove? No, everyone's thing with cars is different. I'd, I'd say for pure car, kind of like exotic, you'll never get a chance to drive it again. There was a car I drove, I think, on last series called an Aston Martin Victor. Ooh. And that car, is uh, it, it was it's over £5 million, the car. There's only one of them on earth. And a rush, uh, sorry, a Belgium billionaire bought the car, got Aston Martin to make it for him, and and give it us to test drive. And then it went. It's gone away. This car, and you'll never see it again. It's locked up somewhere, and it won't come out for another ten years. This car, but to drive it, it was it was just like a it was dri like driving a rocket ship. So it wasn't particularly enjoyable. You wouldn't want to drive that car every day, every day. So what I'm saying is for pure sort of, wow, that's an amazing car and it cost millions and millions of pounds and it was so visceral to drive it, it would be, it'd be that. But would I want that car to drive every day? Would I, heck? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, you know, now... Well, I've also drove uh, on Top Gear um, a Tesla. Now, that, would I drive that every day? Yes. But put it outside of the Aston Martin Victor, you, you know, the Aston Martin Victor, the look of it and everything else is head and tails above that Tesla for, like, you know, supercar status. But I'd sooner drive the Tesla because the Tesla's also got a karaoke machine in the front, which which is, me and Freddie had a good old sing-song on that one. 
What does the future hold for Paddy McGuinness? Who knows? Who knows what the future holds for anyone? I'm, I've been a person, right from being a child, I never planned too much in my life. I kind of just took things as, as they happened. So even with telly, when I started getting into it, it, it was a slow burner for me. I'd do little bits of shows and then it, that would go on to something else and something else and something else. And even now where I'm doing, you know, like Top Gear and Question of Sport and what have you, I do them, but I don't have any plans for anything else in the future. I kind of just, I live by the seat of my pants in, in a way, really. Uh, other people prefer to have things planned in their life and, and game plan and what have you. But I've never really been like that. I love what I do and I enjoy life. And I enjoy, you know, being around my kids and just everything about having a family really is great. But yeah, I never, I never plan too much, lads. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Paddy. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, lads. It's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it. Cheers, lads. Thanks very much. Thank you again, by Thank the way, Thank you Paddy. so much. Okay, boys, Paddy's just left. Tom, I'll come to you first. How do you feel that episode went? Um, I was really honoured to talk to um, Paddy McGuinness because, like, uh, he's one of my childhood idols and it was also really, really good to talk to him about autism because I feel like I could just get off like my past uh, uh, with coping with my autism and so I could relate to it because of his children who have autism and also his wife has autism. Yeah, definitely. It's really, really interesting hearing him speak about it. Harvey, did you have a favourite story from Paddy? Um, I think the story of when he was filming the podcast, I think that sounded really good and how he like under started to understand and all of the stuff that he had to go through and all yeah. So yeah, he's got his own podcast called Table Talk, isn't he? So yeah. that would be really good. I think we should all try and listen to that. It sounds like a really, really good pod- podcast. After what about you? Did you enjoy the podcast? Uh, yes, I like his talk about uh, Top Gear. He's uh, me... Uh, Friend of Fintov and Chris, he's Chris Harris. Harris. And then he's talking about his uh, favourite car, uh, Aston Martin. Victor. Victor, Victor, Victor Martin. My favourite um, car is BMW M3. Mine's a Lamborghini Aventador dream car. The Lamborghini Aventador is called the Lamborghini Aventador because it has a vent in the door. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Boys, you are all fantastic, all three of you. Amazing podcast, so well done. Thank you everyone for listening for listening to our podcast and we will hope to see you all next week. Thank Bye. you for listening, Thank everyone. Listening. Take care. Subscribe <laughs> and like. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.
Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.